Hello and welcome to Monarchism Unfiltered. I'm one of your hosts, Mikosk. This is Bronze. And this is I Am. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about the ever-pertinent uh, existential threat of the South in Europe, debt. Yeah, debt. And why a lot of the stuff you know about debt is a scheme of class warfare. Oh, yeah. We're getting spicy. Right off the bat, I see. Yeah, we're going, we're going big this week. Right, because does, what you have to understand there, listener, is that a lot of the stuff that you've heard in the, in the discourse tra- TM or on the news about debt is nonsense. God, is it nonsense. It's painful how, how, non- how stupid it is, right? But before we get into all the reasons why, I feel like we need to get into some history. Specifically, the economic history of the 20th century, in brief. And by brief, I mean criminally brief. Right? So we start off with the golden age of laissez-faire that starts off from 1870-odd to the First World War. And this period is characterized by the gold standard. And the gold standard is a system of pegging your currency to gold. And the purpose of this was that in this age of growing international commerce, you would have a way of verifying that foreign currency that you received was valid. Right? Because imagine that you are in the business of shipping Argentinian beef to the UK. That was a big business. And so you go to Argentina and, and you want to buy the beef. But how do the Argentinians know that your beautiful pounds sterling are worth anything? It's because you can get, trade them in at any bank for gold. And everyone has sort of agreed that gold is useful. Or at least valuable. Right? So the, and, that's the f- and, and also, it was the theory that gold acts as to limit inflation. And uh, but there, there, there are many problems with gold. And the biggest problem with gold is that it fundamentally limits the rate at which the economy can grow to the speed in which you can mine gold, which is a ridiculous thing to limit the growth of human endeavor to how, at what rate we can extract a mineral from the ground. So, so what Bronze is trying to say here, this listener, is that by sheer, by, by demographics alone, not even speculation here, the, the, the gold standard would be rendered completely inoperable. Yeah, because we keep making more and more stuff, but the amount of gold, I mean, there's amount of gold in the world doesn't increase that fast. You know, there's only a, a, there's pretty much a top speed at which you can mine gold. It's not very bit, it's not very fast. But the gold standard sort of collapses in the First World War. Because essentially, the thing is, the theory was that in times of war or great distress, you would abandon the gold standard and thereby ensure liquidity that you could use to buy guns and whatnot. And then, through fiscal austerity, you could get yourself back on the gold standard. And so this is what was attempted in a lot of the world. And it was a disaster. The bigger, you know, right? I mean, the austerity of the post World War One years was terrible because it just because the problem is, and it's very, this is going to sound very counterintuitive, but cutting spending doesn't reduce debt adequately because it's 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 fundamentally it's a denominator problem. And uh, so if, if, if you consider, you know, how we measure the debt of countries is to debt to GDP. And in the modern world, government spending is invariably 
of a major factor in GDP, obviously, right? Because governments are big, you know, and they spend money and that contributes to the economy. So if you cut spending, the GDP, you know, falls. And if GDP falls, then that means the jet debt to GDP rises. And so it's it's not doesn't really make much sense to cut yourself out of a crisis, you know, because in 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 the worst case scenario, you've entered a deflationary debt death spiral, and essentially you you have to keep sort of trying to cut the budget until there's nothing left, and so there's no growth, and then you're sort of fucked. Pardon the language. And so the worst cases. Of, of of the pains of trying to get back on gold were incurred in Japan and France. In Japan, it, it, you know, the government trying to cut, cut its spending to get out of its massive debt that it took on to get back on the gold standard forced it to cut military spending. And this was very unpopular with the military. And so... Their solution was kill members of the Japanese cabinet until they do what we want. Seems like a seems like a very good policy to like have a stable government. Yeah, uh, government assassination seems. Hard. Yeah, yeah, and so essentially, the the Japanese got themselves out of it because the military came in, established their regime, which was very you know. They spent a lot of money, and it was generally that went poorly. There's a lot of instability. Thirties in Japan were not a good time, but in France, right, the Bank of France was a very strange institution because it was built in such a way that its its board was made up of representatives from the two hundred wealthiest families in France. Right, and they had their and their sort of modus operandi was to defend the franc at all costs, and so they embarked on a sort of horrific regime of austerity to get France back on gold. And uh, if you're wondering why did all these nations in the twenties and thirties go through such great pains to get back on gold? Because that was sort of thought as the right thing to do, I guess. But it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. On the topic of 20s, I think we should also briefly touch on, uh, the, on, the, on the myth, well, not myth, but uh, how German hyperinflation during the 20s was self-inflicted rather than a consequence of the Great Crash. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Because we yeah. So and and one of the things that we're going to talk about a lot in this episode is how Milton Friedman is is essentially set back economics like a, a century and a half because he started. You know, he is responsible for the idea that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And all I will say about that proposition today is that it's wrong. It's completely wrong. If you want me to spend four hours discussing every which single which way that it's wrong, send us an email. But needless to say, inflation is a very sort of complicated process that has a that can have a lot of various different causes and a lot of various different effects but milton friedman out of the a political agenda to to promote a very deflationary monetary politics created the idea that inflation was created is and is always created by monetary policy to simplify things, he... it is it's actually the meme of printing money causes inflation. Yes. Yeah. In the mind, there has been inextricably linked the proposition of increased money supply 
with inflation. And that's not to say that if if printing money carelessly can't cause inflation or that the, the size of the money supply and inflation are not linked. But, but essentially, inflation occurs because the government chooses for it to occur. Right? That doesn't mean they want inflation. That just means they have not made the limit... The, limita- the limiting of inflation, one of their key priorities. And one of the most famous cases of inflation, that is a great example to illustrate this, is the German hyperinflation. I'm sure, I'm sure many of you listeners have seen on the internet and elsewhere pictures of German families carrying around wheelbarrows of cash to buy bread. And there's very real images, but they were not created by the German government recklessly printing money. But the inflation was a deliberate strategy to shaft the French on war reparations. Because if you inflate, if, if you destroy the value of the Reichsmark, then, you know, having to pay back the, the, the French how many millions of Reichsmarks it was, I can't remember, but right, it became a trifle of a sum because they had caused inflation. But in reality, what characterized Weimar Germany economically was actually severe deflation caused by a, a ruthless austerity policy to try to get the Germans back on gold. Which what and this policy was pursued both by the German right, that is not by which I don't mean the National Socialists, but the established German right, you know, the liberals and the conservatives, and also by the German left, the SPD. Because what you have to understand is that they they espoused the teachings of a certain Karl Marx. And Karl Marx had taken a lot of his macroeconomic theory from Ricardo. And so the so-called theologians of the SPD had really taken the Ricardian spirit to heart and were very much, you know, Ricardians when it came to monetary policy. That's kind of a bizarre, it's a kind of bizarre historical note, if you, if you think about it, that sort of... Uh, like, like as a as a sort of series of events that you know, I mean, I, I don't doubt it because I mean there was also the whole there was the whole idea of um there was this like m- like I I think it was something like it, it was like the, it was some proposal for a gilder or something which the SPD floated at one point where they essentially wanted to have um a a currency that always deflated in value um which was it was it's like quite a bizarre thing to think about yeah but i mean the spd wasn't certainly not unique in this there are a lot of socialist parties arguably even to this day are quite ricardian in their understanding of monetary economics since you would think that they would want there to be more money to individual people rather than the people who have money to get progressively even more money by doing nothing with it. Yeah, yeah. which which I mean, Marx sort of, because of his, his very much the Riccardi influence, sort of viewed as the only possible option, if that makes sense. So, were we, so we're, what then do you think in terms of the so you, um, this idea of uh, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, the that sort of a, and this kind of um, I know especially in two thousand when there was the potential crash that was avo- avoided that was avoided by shifts in monetary policy, um, and. Would, would is this in large part because of the of Milton Friedman's understanding 
underpinning of monetary policy that that it's like this the central bank is the sort of key institution almost so i would say that it, it comes from a few various sources that that coagulated in the 1980s specifically under friedman and so to to talk about why those exist we have to talk about the thing that comes directly after the war which is comes from all this austerity and that's keynesianism because what keynes realized is that all this sort of cutting ourselves to prosperity and the trying to mercilessly get back on gold is pretty ridiculous right and so and that's and so he his economic policy started winning out post-war in especially in england but also in a, in a lot of un, other countries right and they kept a sort of austerity ideology and the sort of idea that you know because keynes was very much aware i would say that he makes the mistake of going too far the other way of making the inflation too much a matter of the fiscal when i think it's it's much more both but during the long winter of Keynesianism, there was sort of two sort of redoubts of, you know, because the thing is, is that in microeconomics, there's viewed as this compromise between inflation and unemployment, that you can either have high inflation and low unemployment or high unemployment and low inflation. And Keynes was certainly a man of the former, right? Because if you have very strong unions and, and a state that intervenes on behalf of wage earners, and this is where you get Kaletsky's labor theory of inflation, that since workers do the spending, any increases in pay negotiated for by unions have to come from the increasing of prices by capital that is to say if you have a shoe factory if the shoe if the, if the workers in the shoe factory have an increase of wages the money supplied thereby must be produced by an increase in the price of shoes and so the real wage of the worker has not increased that is there is a supply pull that is a demand pull on on, on, on the cost of shoes and therefore it, it goes up. And that this continues in a spiral that is known as stagflation, which was the crisis of Keynesianism in the 70s. Right, and the fear of stagflation became sort of the crisis of neoliberalism. This, it was its principal fear. It was, as it's the stagflation of the late 70s was the Reichstag fire of neoliberalism, is the claim I'm going to make today. Right? And so during the Keynesian period, from about, you know, the end of the war to 1979, there were two main camps of anti-Keynesian thinking, the Germans and the Austrians. So the Germans came up with a system known as ordo-liberalism which it started already in the late 19th century and 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 then it had a, a small flourishing in the interwar period and then it managed to stay relatively sort of undercover not undercover as in hiding but sort of under the radar during the nazis and emerged to be a dominant faction in german economic academia after the fall of the nazis and 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 order liberalism is still essentially the it is the de facto ideology of the germans yep when it comes to when it comes to you know their relationship with europe and their policies at home and so what order liberalism was was the management of an e e economy by what is called an ordning and so this was a form of economic liberalism 
which avoided the classical problem of the liberal state. And this is something that goes all the way back to Smith and Hume in the 18th century. No, no, it goes back to Locke, actually. That liberalism has a problem with the state because it can't live with it, it can't live without it, and it certainly does not want to pay for it. But the auto-liberals got around this by baking the the idea of the state into their version of liberal economics. So the idea was that the, the state does not interfere in economics like a Keynesian state would, would say, you know, asset restrictions or the man- manipulation of wages or bailing out failing businesses. But it does create a very strict ordning, that is to say, an, an economic order that creates prosperity. And it was and, and this sort of order was based around productivity, low imports, high rates of saving, and minimizing imports. It was almost a little bit mercantilist in that way. And this sort of, you know, and, and it sort of goes back to this German mindset of oh, I don't know the but like first save, then shop. Ed Sparen, then Kaufen, I think. And so the idea was that they would all export and be productive. And this way they could they could have liberal economics and not face the, the sort of dilemma of the state. And the other faction was the Austrians. By which I don't mean the nation, but the school of economics that had come to flourish in America under, say, the likes of Schumpeter. Because he was an Austrian that had gone to America and become very influential. And they sort of set themselves up, especially at the University of Chicago, and started developing this the, sort of their critical idea. But they did not have the sort of... They still did have the problem of the state, but they were much more radical austerity politicians than the Ordnung's liberals. So much so, they they wildly supported, influenced, and determined Pinochet's uh, economic policy. You know, the part where he starved his own people. Yeah. So anyway, in nineteen, in the end of the nineteen seventies, there is the crisis of of Keynesianism, the stagflation, and all this coagulates under Milton Friedman and. And the monetarists, represented by Friedman in America and a man called Patrick Minford in the UK. Right? And so one of the things Friedman comes up with is the concept of the of the natural rate of unemployment as a consequence of the theory of voluntary unemployment. In short, he believed unemployment and consequently poverty were a choice. He did not believe they were a a choice as well he did believe they were a choice right but essentially it wasn't that the worker simply had no opportunity for labor but that due to market conditions wages had fallen to such a low that the worker was not willing to work right that that sort of the unemployed man had done a cost-value-benefit analysis and decided that the low wages currently given by market conditions are no longer worth his effort. Right, and so following from this idea, he stipulated that there was a natural rate of unemployment. Right, in an economy, there will always be people who are unemployed. And so trying to push unemployment below this figure you know, would not would disproportionately increase inflation and destabilize the economy. And so the monetarists, you know, adopted the policy of crushing inflation at all costs. And this was sort of the fi- foundational principle of neoliberalism was, you know, whatever it takes to destroy inflation. Right, and so he revitalized all these defunct ideals of, you know, austerity and debt 
and uh, he, he he revived the crunch towards the gold standard that were in the in, in the interwar years except now we don't even have the gold yeah i mean the gold we don't really need the gold because we have the dollar which is like gold except more useful Those who don't understand what he's meaning, he's he's referring to the fact that all of the world's currencies are directly or indirectly pegged to the dollar or or dollar products such as petrodollar, etc. So in a way, we already have a single global currency. Yeah, and it's the it's the dollar, but it's it's pretty strange because you know as one of the sort of foundational tenets of of Keynesianism was fixed conversion between currencies and that that went that that went that was that was out of the window and so now it's sort of weird because it's all the dollar but they fluctuate against each other and so that's another dynamic in short it's all the same it's all the same it's all the same um, currency it's just Think of it as governments competing against one another in another new field of war that isn't a battlefield. Yeah. So it isn't supposed to fluctuate, but it does due to policy. Well, it, it fluctuates due to a lot of things, some of which are policy. But anyway. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, and so, but obviously, right, the the... What you might want, might notice is that the destruction of inflation comes to benefit a very particular class. Because if we go back to Colette, to Keynes and you know Kolecki and the labor theory of inflation, right? If if you know if wages do not rise because there is no inflation there is no bargaining in the economy right but the assets of the wealthy are not subject to inflation there comes to be a very unequal distribution of the, of society and as the inflation falls due to the direct monetary policies associated with it with it the limiting of it we see that labor's share of national income keeps falling and that there in real terms has not been a rise in wages since 1979. Yeah, the, the, the famous, well, not famous for you two, but the famous statement, Europe hasn't grown since, since the 30 glorious years. Oh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar. Well, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah, the thirty glorious years being the period of Keynesianism, and and so and and then all this is com compromised because the sort of the hard there comes then as there was for Keynesianism a crisis of neoliberalism, which we are currently living. Yeah, and which we have lived for the last twelve years because the crisis of neoliberalism was the 2008 recession. But something very interesting happened in 2008. And that is that we did not fail the system. We bailed the system. So essentially, the, the bailouts that were conducted at the end of the 2008 recession, essentially, the, the, we sort of Frankenstein reanimated the dead corpse of neoliberalism. So what you're saying is that the system that kicked that kicked Keynesianism into a pit had to be Keynesian back into living. Well, well, it was not Keynesian back to back to living, because I think I think there is there is sort of this association uh, that oh, the state doing something is Keynes. But in fact, I think the 2008 bailouts were sort of distinctly anti Keynes. They were in I think they were done in such a way that if presented to both a Keynesian and an Austrian, both would be very much displeased. 
Yeah, you, uh, yeah, true. Keynes was pro uh, pro low unemployment and like vaguely defined pro pro worker, not pro big, not pro big corporate or big bank. I suppose at least the po- at least the application of his policies weren't. Yeah, I mean the the, the bigger know. yeah the bigger issue is that um, you know the Austrian would say no bailouts. Um, like yeah, because you know, they schools ha- of Austrians who even sort of think that there's no such thing as like a, a market crash because it's just the market adjusting itself. Um, so, like there, there are people who yeah, so, think it's, yeah, it's just the will of the market. You yeah, the Austrian would say that that is an yeah. undue interference, and the Keynesian would say that they, it's not a solution at all because you've done nothing about the fiscal. What you've essentially done is you've taken the bad assets of the banks and you've put them on the taxpayer's bill. That's what essentially what was, you know. And then, and this is why I we started this uh, uh, episode by saying that it's going to be about debt. Now, this, this was just the preamble. Essentially, right, and after this, you see on the news, You've you've probably seen you know the the, vet, the website counters and such that oh my god there is a debt crisis how are we gonna deal with all this debt Jesus it's terrible and then the sort of weaselly idea that oh the only way we have to get out of this debt is by cutting spending but in fact there is no such thing as the debt crisis. Right, what there is is a banking crisis. Right, if you've seen, you know, Senator Paul Ryan on the news talking about how there's been an orgy of public spending, and now we have to cut back. It's it's plainly ridiculous because where where's the spend? There has been no public spending. There's, there was never an orgy of public spending that ballooned us into the debt. The debt came from the bad assets of the banks. Right, and then the sort of, the, the you know, and then people and are sort case, of... And in case someone is doubting what we're stating, if you go look up the European countries, which is the only example I'm familiar with, that didn't bail out their banks, that let them fail, namely Iceland. Yes, Iceland. Uh, Denmark, I think, and other such cases, they're now doing fine. Meanwhile, Portugal, Spain, Italy to a lesser degree, but also, and Greece, who bailed out all of their banks, well, guess fucking what? We're not good. Not by a long shot. No right, because the, the Icelandics did what would the Keynesian would do, which is let the banks fail and then have the state pick up the pieces. That's the you know the Keynesian response, you know. The Austrian might have sort of just let the pieces fall onto the floor, but that's I I I don't have that much respect for the Austrians. I don't have that much respect for the Keynesians either, but I have certainly much more respect for them. Right, really what the bailouts were, what were they were monetarist, they were neoliberal, they were Friedmanite. The idea that we must bail out the banks to prevent inflation, so that the assets of the rich will not be harmed. Right, and so we, ha- we, ha- we have all this debt created by the crash, which... Well, what argument you want to make or not about how should we have, should we not have bailed out the banks? Or I, I would say we should have done it a lot differently. But setting that big question aside, right, the response, which has been to cut, 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 has been an abysmal failure. Because as, as I said, you can't cut your way to growth. Or at least... Everyone can't cut their way to growth all at once. Because then you incur a fa- like a fallacy of composition. 
Right, which is if we're all cutting, there's no way, there's nowhere for it to go. And so what we're doing is we're just sort of shrinking the economy and the, the you know, has the debt decreased from the cutting of, of spending? Obviously not, no. The way you get out of debt is by growing the economy. Right, but growing the economy in such a way that may incur inflation would be disastrous to the assets of the rich. Disastrous in a quite a mild sense. Certainly much less disastrous than pitched forked gangs eating them, but that's whatever. You know, there's just... Right, and now... Now we're in a different crisis altogether. Right, because there's just... I don't even know. Right, because what's going to happen again is that people are going to say, oh, we have spent too much and we need to cut back. And that's only going to make it worse. And, you know, like all, you know, there's the counterexamples of the, the sort of, you know, the Latvian miracle that, oh, the Latvians cut, cut their way to growth. They cut all their spending and they got rid of all their debt, which for one is sort of completely non-transportable because Latvians, great nation though I'm sure they are, are quite unique in their economic circumstances. And to the Latvian miracle didn't, didn't really work as 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 a, as a success. It, it, well, they got rid of their debt, but really, what they ended up with was sort of they crippled their long term growth to do it. They are no even a they are no longer even a sovereign nation economically speaking because they sold everything that wasn't bolted to the ground. Latvia no longer exists. Well, they, they not so much sold it as they had it repossessed. I would wager against the Baltic Sea at this point. Yeah, because if you sell something, you at least get something in return. Which... one can't really say they have. So in short, they broke their own back to to clear out a rather pointless statistic. Right. God, that sounds so European Union, it almost hurts. Yeah, but, but, but I, I, you know, but I, I want to stress that, that I, I, I do not want to blame the Latvians for their sorrows. For they did so very much under the threat of German economic violence. Also known as being, or also known as an everyday reality of being a member of the EU. Yeah, because the EU was very much transformed into Germany's fiscal dungeon, right? And that's a direct sort of cause of auto-liberalism. Because allow me to explain this in a in a in a very concise way. So you remember when Braun said that ordo liberalism was mercantile it was mercantilist, right? So here's the issue with mercantilism: if everyone if everyone protects uh, the ex uh, their imports, no one is exporting. So Germany essentially uses the European Union has its guaranteed export market by protecting imports of other European countries into it but making sure that every other European country must import from uh, from Germany. So essentially, the, uh, the, the European Union it can be seen as an economic appendage to Germany rather than anything else. Right, because essentially what it, it's, it's sort of an economic why are you punching yourself. Right, because essentially they use the deficits of, you know, deficits that they created of the pigs, that is to say, you know, Portugal, Ireland, Greece, Spain, and Italy. Not in that order, because then it doesn't spell out the word pigs. Uh, that was the order I can remember them. 
it, it uses their deficits to to facilitate their own surplus and then turns around to those nations and, and says, why do you have so big deficits? Right, because auto-liberalism sort of states that we're all supposed to run surpluses. But that's that's a compositional fallacy. Everyone can't run a surplus because for every surplus, there has to be a deficit. You, you can run a surplus uh, if you run it against the moon. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Right. But so essentially, and 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 the Germans, the, the why they have have done this in such a torturous way, I'd argue, is due to the German morality of debt, best illustrated by linguistics. The German word for debt is Schuld, meaning guilt, right? Essentially, according to the sort of this auto-liberal system, if you are indebted, then you are sort of morally lesser, right? That over-borrowing, so you just say Greece has done, is wrong and reckless, which is incredibly hypocritical if you consider that there cannot be overborrowing without overlending, which is exactly what the Germans are doing. The deficit is directly created by German policy to facilitate its own surpluses. In short, it's bleeding the South dry. Yeah, because essentially, you know, the... The, the, the whole of Europe have tied themselves to the apparatus of the European Central Bank, which exists as Germany's fiscal dungeon to promote their auto-liberal system. And so it has said, oh, you've all been so naughty and borrowing, so we're going to run a very deflationary e economic policy for all of Europe. Because we have to cut back on spending. Because we've been guilty. Well, not we you've been guilty and so oh no is there no growth in southern europe it's almost like there wasn't any spending because we've purposely created a deficit to run our surplus against hmm that's weird so weird but then an italian took over the uh the the european central bank and lended money like wild so the South could have its deficits, but not starve. The situation is the same. We're just, we're just not up in arms in voting for uh, potentially dangerous left or right-wing parties that might upset German dominance is really the point here. Yeah, right. Because, I mean, essentially it's sort of like a, it's like a, it's like a bootstrap thing because the Germans, they had, you know, the, you know, their version of the Trant Glorieuse, which was the Wirtschaftswunder, which was sort of the sort of hard order liberalism under the CDU. Yes, which was CDU. CDU, yeah. Right, so essentially saying, oh, we came out sort of completely battered by the war, and then we worked hard, exported, had, had surpluses. Why can't you do that? Not really realizing that that set of policies was sort of completely contingent on a set of material realities that don't exist anymore, partially due to German order liberalism. In short, the European Union is a time bomb, fiscally and economically. Yeah, it's just like it's, it's just a dungeon, right? It's this sort of dungeon of austerity that, that sort of kills all growth in the name of big surplus. Which directly benefits the Germans more than anyone else. Yeah, because right. they have surpluses. Also, I would like to also point out since we, since we are since this episode did kind of turn turn to into a bit of a German unmasking, and this is a and what I'm going to say makes more sense um, for European uh, for Europeans per se, though still in the European Union. Remember that when people are talking about making the European uh, Union, especially the European Parliament, more democratic about voting, etc., 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 I would like to remind you all of a simple factor of demographics and that by almost an order of magnitude, 
German, Germany is the most populous country in the European Union. Anything that brings the votes of the individual to count more makes that means that Germany will have inevitably more power in the parliament because what people forget in all of these proposals is that if if the if the if the European Parliament becomes more democratic, they're thinking of dropping the restrictions. Ei, you can't have a majority or a parliamentary group or what have you that doesn't have representatives of seven different countries into just the majority of the people votes, which under certain circumstances could mean that the Germans would have absolute power over the EU. So, uh, you know, something to chew on in regards to structures of the European Union and how and, and their their coating and what they truly do when applied. I know that was a completely unnecessary like side trip, but I did not need to mention it. Uh, I, I'd also like to mention we've been focusing a lot on, on, on Europe because we live in Europe. But but this is by no means unique to Europe in the way that these dynamics exist. I believe a similar thing has been done internal to New York. New York State, um, where New York State has kind of gut has been gutted by New York City. Um, so I think, yeah, like uh, Albany, New York has has declined it by like a third in population or something since two thousand and eight because this, because the city of New York has sort of swallowed everything by way of like specific monetary policy, basically. Yeah. Like the discourse around monetary policy in America makes very little sense because Americans are very obsessed with their own national debt and sort of have the cult of the dollar in, in the sense that, you know, during the recent set of events, there was a set of quantitative easing in which... Uh, the U.S. Congress created another $2 trillion to add it to the market, and the Federal Reserve created another $4 trillion of liquidity, this being known as the great money printer go burr of 2020. And it caused sort of pandemonium on the internet over sort of fears of hyperinflation and that burgers would cost a billion dollars by 2021. But what I think is incredibly revealing is that during all that reckless printing, which I'd argue was actually a quite a meager amount of printing compared to what, what, what was feasible, the dollar deflated. That's right. During the quote-unquote printing of six trillion additional dollars, the dollar deflated. And the Freedomanite would say, well, that is impossible. Surely that cannot be, as the printing of money causes inflation. But it can not be, because the dollar, in a fundamental sense, is uninflatable because it is the fuel for the American deficit engine, right? America, in, in, the, in the macroeconomic sense, is the sort of the deficit engine of which runs the world, and it is fueled by the hegemony of the dollar. To simplify things, because everyone is buying dollars due to buying American debt, it is impossible to inflate the dollar because there's always more people who want to buy more debt. So even if there are, quote unquote, more dollars, it's irrelevant because they immediately get purchased, as it were. Yeah. So if like Trump going all mercantilist over the American deficit, saying, because I'm, and I'm sure you have, and if you have not, you can easily find them on YouTube, his many speeches talking about his various debt, America's various deficits to Mexico and China, and this being the cause of certain trade wars, right? It's, it's really a fuss over nothing, because the deficit is not a problem for America, right? Because Trump's speeches sort of seem to imply that the, the deficit is dollars leaving, like its value going from America 
and to abroad. But in fact, it is just dollars going abroad in return for stuff, for, for, for materials and, and services bought by the Americans, right? And, and that level of deficit is fine because of the dollar, right? I, like they, you know, and that's where the sort of, the, you know, there, there is this thing. And I don't want to go completely off track because this, this episode will then last forever. But that, right, there's the, the concept of um, modern, modern monetary theory, which states that why don't we just print money to pay off all the stuff, right? This, this, which has sort of been exemplified by the, lead, the, the former lead, current leader of the American Greens, Jill Stein, when she said, well, if we could create $4 trillion for the 2008 recession, why can't we create $1.3 trillion to pay off all the student loans? And the more you think about it, the more it it seems less and less ridiculous. Because it sounds ridiculous. I mean, you can't just print money to pay off all the problems, right? But really, the sort of idea of fake stewardship that, oh, we we, we, we can't be reckless and we have to be careful with the money comes from a deliberate ideology around not creating inflation because inflation is what destroys the assets of the rich right that is to say that sort of that essentially my point is Milton Friedman is a cringe human who has set back economics 150 years and his deflationary monetary policy is an act of class warfare and if if that doesn't instantly make sense then uh, then write us an email, and I, I, we could, we can do more episodes about this if people find this interesting, right? If there's something in this episode that didn't make sense because we went over a lot of stuff quite quickly, then I think you know, just send us an email, and we'll respond or we'll make follow-up episodes. Either, either via either Discord for those of us, for those of you that are on the Discord. The email or via uh, YouTube comment because we do read them. The two yep. of them that we constantly have. Yeah, uh, and reach in, out to us on any of those, and and we'll respond to the best of our ability because it, some of the stuff can be quite tricky to explain, and we went over it quite quickly. And I understand that a lot of it doesn't make sense. Like, how can you? How can cutting spending increase debt? And how how can printing money isn't that big of a deal as I learned from economics explained videos on YouTube and Milton Friedman. And why is my life in a fiscal dungeon created by German surpluses? It's it's all weird and I understand that it's weird. And and so if any of this is not isn't has not made sense, then please write to us on, on the email, the Discord or the YouTube comments. And we'll try our best to clear it up. That's why we are here. Yeah. Seems like a good place to leave it. Um, I don't really have too, uh, too much else to say. I think that's a very good explanation overall. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. This has been Monarchism Unfiltered. I was one of your hosts, Mikulsk. I've been Bronze. And I've been I Am. Good night.